Experience the beauty and emotion of Lent and Easter with Christianity Today's newest devotional, Easter, in the everyday. Thoughtful readings from a variety of pastors, theologians, and writers invite you into the emotional stages of Christ's journey, from humility to hope to love. Beginning on Ash Wednesday and ending at Pentecost, this digital devotional is perfect for individual or group study. Get it today at orderct.com slash easter24. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McLenathan, and to get into the spirit of things for this week's episode, Wade, I am broadcasting from the exact mathematical center of the room I'm in. You know, Kevin, I actually set up my laptop at a perfect 90-degree angle for this podcast. Well, I guess that just leaves one final question, Wade. Are you wearing an extremely dapper suit right now? Actually, even better, Kevin. I've created a stop-motion puppet of my body, and he's currently speaking into the microphone. Well, I did see on Facebook you talking about working on your ventriloquism skills, so that tracks. Listeners, we have a very special episode for you today. We're going to be talking about the one, the only, Wes Anderson. Brush up on your family dysfunction and hold on to your slightly comical hats because it's going to be a wild ride on this episode, episode 247 of Seeing and Believing. Yes, we're here on episode 247 of Seeing and Believing. Subtitled, just a couple of 30-something white guys talking about Wes Anderson. It's going to be a good one, mate. I can already feel it. <laughs> we have reached a podcasting cliche. Uh, two guys starting a podcast, and now we're talking about Wes Anderson. I mean, where do we go from here, Kevin? We have become I, mainstream. I think the, the only thing left is for you to get some, some hipster eyeglasses and for me to get a man bun or something, and then we'll have finally reached you know true uh, white guy cinephile cliche mode. Yeah, well, you know what I could do? I do have a record player. I, I could do the, the interlude music this week through my record player. Maybe that'll okay. get us there. Get, get some vintage vinyl up in here. Uh, I, I like it. I like it. <laughs> well, I, I'm excited about this episode. This is, I, I guess this is the end of our 2020 auteur series. And it's it's been a lot of fun. We had Christopher Nolan, Kelly Reichert, David Fincher, Wes Anderson, all very different filmmakers. Uh, and it's it's been, it's been something, Kevin. <laughs> it, it's been a lot of fun. I've for one, have enjoyed the chance to go back through the filmographies of these directors and finally have an excuse to catch up with the deeper cuts, I guess, the ones that maybe don't get talked about as much or that mm-hmm. go overlooked. So it's been good for me, at least, to kind of round out my my knowledge of, of some of these really, really great filmmakers. Yeah, I, I, think, with, I think with most of these filmmakers, I, I've seen, I had already seen all of their films. I think there was one from Kelly Reichert, one from Fincher, but it allowed me to go back and to look especially at those movies that I I wasn't too fond of the first time I watched them. And with almost every one of those films, I, I felt like I, at, at the very least, appreciated them 
a little bit more on a rewatch. And so, and that's, that's been good. And so I've been on the record of not being always on board with Wes Anderson. And so it was great to kind of look through and say, okay, well, well, why is that? Do I need to give him another shot? What films do I need to watch again? And, And so hopefully it's been helpful. Yeah, I have a feeling this is going to be an interesting discussion because of that very thing you mentioned, Wade, that you have some some Anderson films that uh, maybe you have a little bit harder time appreciating. And this kind of gives us a chance to go back through and sort of ask ourselves, you know, like, what is a Wes Anderson film and what kind of what what do we think of when we think of Wes Anderson and I know that for most people, when they th- hear Wes Anderson's name, they think of maybe one word, quirk. That's kind of the word that has come to define, whether fairly or unfairly, a lot of Wes Anderson's sensibility. His films are defined by an immaculate attention to production design, very formalized uh, framing, and uh, a certain artifice that comes with the stories that he tells about uh, socially maladjusted loners, the desire for community, and family dysfunction. But in the midst of that, Wade, while I was going back through his filmography for this episode, I began to notice uh, something that was a was running through most, if not all, of his films that hadn't really popped out to me with such clarity before. So you've got the artifice, you've got the dry, often self-conscious quirk, you've got the preoccupation with using literature, the theater, and filmmaking as frames for the story being told within the film. All of these are devices that, in one way or another, accentuate the character's awareness that there is a gulf between where they are right now, emotionally, relationally, etc., and where they would like to be. And so often in an Anderson film, the same devices that signify that distance, that sort of holding uh, sentimentality at arm's length, those very devices often become the vehicle through which the characters step over that gulf, bridge that gap, and do achieve some sort of resolution. And I think that that's something that's, that's so interesting, and it's something that... In a, in a lot of ways, feels very childlike. Anderson films are mature, but there's a childlikeness to them that can't be overlooked, a, a willingness to play make-believe, if you will. And that's signified by the Andersonian quirk, the rigidly controlled framing and production design and all of that. And I think that, in a way, that feels very fitting. It's no accident, Wade, I guess, that so many Anderson films deal with children, whether literal children or metaphorical adult <laughs> children. So I'm, I'm curious to know, that's kind of my my take uh-huh. on Anderson's filmography. I'm curious to know, when you were putting together this list and reviewing his films, what kind of popped out to you? What do you think of when you think of Wes Anderson? Well, I, I think of all the things that you just said, if I had to describe him in one word, it would be calculated. And that's, I think, good and bad in some movies. I think what stuck out to me in this run through was, and it's fascinating that you bring up childlike, these characters in his films almost always have this particular vision of life 
uh, whether that's in young adulthood or whether that's when they're children. They have this particular goal. They think life is going to turn out one way, and it doesn't. And so now they're they're searching. And I I think the idea of his films being sort of playful and to go back to that world that word childlike is because these these individuals are trying to understand what their visions for the good life and their childlike visions of life, how they grapple with the world. And we don't usually get easy answers, but I do think one of the positive aspects of a Wes Anderson movie is that you do get some type of reconciliation. You do find some sort of joy. Now, many times that's bittersweet, but these characters are finding a way to move forward even if they don't know exactly where they're gonna go. So all that is kind of running through my mind and, and I think it might stand out as I work through his filmography here on the podcast. Yeah, well, that's that's a good answer and I'm looking forward to digging into the specifics of how that plays out over the course of our lists. So I guess without further ado, let's let's jump right into our lists. There are nine feature films currently directed by Wes Anderson. The tenth is, of course, The French Dispatch coming out later this year. Uh, so we'll start at number nine with me and uh, march on through with you sharing your own personal rankings as well. Down at number nine, I have maybe the only Wes Anderson film that for me I think is just doesn't really quite work. And before I, I share what it is, I think maybe a good caveat to share would be that um, Anderson is one of those directors that I like talking about with other people because in a lot of ways, his idiosyncrasy kind of feeds into the idiosyncrasies of the audience. Everybody has their own personal favorite Wes Anderson film and everybody has their least favorite and the rankings of his films are as unique as the individuals doing the rankings. So that's, I think, why it's going to be so much fun to talk about him over the course of this episode. Down at my number nine, the, the idiosyncratic pick for probably his worst film is The Darjeeling Limited. This is the uh, 2007 film starring Adrian Brody, Owen Wilson, and Jason Schwartzman as a trio of brothers who... Uh, travel through India on an odyssey to deal with their own complex feelings after the death of their father. And this is a film that, like any Anderson film, I think it's just, it's so immaculately put together. The visuals are so stunning. And the way that Anderson uses the the colors and the the culture of, of India as a way to kind of let his let himself run free with the visuals in this film is, I mean, you can't really fault him for that. I do think that there's an unfortunate tendency when Wes Anderson is kind of filmmaking in a majority non-white cultures for him to kind of feel a little bit like a tourist, kind of like taking snapping pictures of all the quote unquote interesting people and kind of not really feeling feeling a little bit appropriating of that culture, if if I can maybe use that word. And I think that that's kind of evident in the Darjeeling Limited, where it does kind of feel like Indian culture is window dressing for the story in a way that feels 
that I'm not entirely comfortable with myself. So um, that's where I stand on this one, even though there are some elements of the film that I do think are quite stunning. I think of that that near the film's end where there's that tracking shot through various cars on the titular train where we see kind of every character going about their business in their own separate train compartment. And I think that there's the way that Anderson moves through that kind of miniature, if you will, that works really well and speaks to some pet thematic concerns I find compelling. I just wish that I found the entirety of the film as compelling as little moments like that. It says the train's lost. How can a train be lost? It's on rails. Apparently we took a wrong turn at some point last night. That's crazy. How far of course are we? Nobody knows. We haven't located us yet. What'd you just say? What? What you just said. Say it again. We haven't located us yet. Ah! Is that symbolic? We haven't located us yet. Where's those feathers at? In the envelope I gave you this morning. Meet me on top of that thing out there. Yeah, so... This was actually the last Anderson film I watched as I was working through his filmography a couple of years ago, and I had not seen this one, and I didn't put it as a very high priority because I felt like a lot of people said it was, it was their least favorite, and so I don't know if you're in the majority. It, it, it feels like most people have this towards the bottom of their list. And I gotta say, Kevin, I was very surprised at how much I like this movie, and it almost had me kind of eating my words about Wes Anderson. This is actually my number three. So this is your number nine. This is my number three. I think this is one of his, yeah, it's one of his best. And I want to speak to a couple of different things. Uh, The first thing is, I think when it comes to Wes Anderson, as you noted, personal preferences are involved. And some of the films that I don't like from him, I, I don't know if I have a great defense as to why I don't like them. I think probably the best explanation is I just didn't really get it. It it wasn't necessarily for me. This film, uh, it was the opposite. I, I felt like this is a movie that was kind of tailor-made for me. I was very much attracted to the story. You have three brothers, and they're trying to grapple with their father's death, and they're trying to understand each other. And so that's kind of ripe for me anyway. Um, I went on this this trip to India whenever I was a, a freshman in college, and it was kind of this big thing for me. And so uh, just seeing these characters kind of work through that. And so I can relate to this movie in a number of different ways. I love that kind of model shot that you were talking about, Kevin, of, of this train and all these characters and their own separate ways or doing their own separate things, and yet they're all kind of together on this journey. I think that the quote-unquote tourist aspect of the movie that you're mentioning here, Kevin, I think it works well for this movie because I found that Anderson does a fine job of humorously critiquing these sort of other Eastern spiritual pilgrimage films, something like maybe, I don't know, Eat, Pray, Love. And so as I'm watching the movie, I get the sense that he's kind of poking his finger at these characters and saying, okay, you're kind of going all the way around the world to understand what's right there in front of you. And you're kind of like the film, kind of snapping pictures at all of these things in this country. You're not really a part of it. You're just going to this country to see what you can kind of 
take from it. There's this big scene, this drowning scene, which I think technically is kind of strange in Anderson's filmography and probably the weak point of the film. But I think overall, what it's trying to say is it's trying to help them understand like these are real people in this country. It's not just a place you're going to 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 take from. And so, yeah, I, I really do like it. And as we're talking about, it, I didn't have a chance to watch it again for, for the podcast, but um, just kind of reviewed some scenes. I really want to go see it again because uh, I, I thought it was pretty good. Oh, well, you know, and this is why I was really looking forward to this episode is because I, I hear you talk about the film that way. And it makes me kind of think like, oh, maybe I got it wrong. Maybe I should watch it again. But I think that's kind of, like, I feel like that's kind of the way Anderson works is that there, there's something about his films that, as I mentioned earlier, they're so individualized that you, you know, one person can just be left completely cold by it, and the other person can find so much to to appreciate mm-hmm. and love about it. And they, you know, they're watching the same film, and for it to provoke that range of reactions, I think speaks a lot to Anderson's distinctiveness as a as a creative vision. Yeah, and I think the performances at the center of the film uh, with Owen Wilson, Adrian Brody, and Jason Schwartzman. I think they really do make that sort of deadpan humor work with the emotion of the story. And that's not always the case, in my opinion, with other Anderson films. I think their performances are really good. And the way they interact with each other, the chemistry. And that can be hard in a movie like this because in Anderson's films, the the characters are... uh, they're not necessarily saying things with their face, <laughs> but they're saying things with their words. They basically explain everything with their words. They don't hide anything back, but they don't ever act that out. And I think there are some scenes later on in this movie where the characters kind of open up a bit and it really brings it home for me. Yeah, well, the, the performances are probably the strong point of the film. It makes me wonder... Why we didn't get more Adrian Brody in, in Wes Anderson films? Because mm. he does so well mm-hmm. in, in this film, and he seems kind of almost tailor-made to be yeah. kind of one of these core cast members. But uh, I guess he's just going to be <laughs> one of those one of those one-off actors uh, in in Wes Anderson's filmography. We'll see though. Maybe he'll have like a, a cam an uncredited cameo in uh, the French Dispatcher or now, something. Now, wasn't he in he the Grand Budapest Hotel in, in just a very short section? Correct. He didn't really do much. Oh. Yeah, that's that's true. That yeah, you're right. You're right. But but I mean, it's it really it didn't give him a lot to work with, and I I totally get what you're saying. I agree with you. He needs. I think he would be great in more of his movies. I really do. He doesn't have the the central role, I guess. That he has in the Darjeeling Limited. So. Yeah, yeah. But we'll we'll see. Uh, moving on to my number eight, uh, I have Wes Anderson's debut film, uh, Bottle Rocket. This is. Uh, his feature film adaptation of an earlier short film that he made uh, starring Owen Wilson and Luke Wilson as appropriately enough brothers, uh, one of whom, uh, Luke Wilson's character, uh, has just ended a stay in a psychiatric hospital, and the other one, Dignan, which is perhaps Owen Wilson's most famous, one of his most most famous and distinctive roles anyway, is kind of a small-time crook and con man who picks up his brother from the hospital and tells him, we're going to pull one last job. So this is a heist crime spree movie refracted through the Andersonian sensibility. So it's got a lot of uh, that signature quirk. And I don't normally like talking about quirk with Wes Anderson because it does feel a little bit 
reductive to just talk about, oh, there's just, you know, characters being really deadpan and the framing and the production design. It's all really quirky. I don't think that's an entirely just way to characterize his filmography as a whole. I do think that Bottle Rocket gets closer to being quirky without really, for me at least, giving me a whole lot to to hold on to in terms of uh, something something deeper. And that's to be expected. I mean, this is his first feature film. It's, uh, you know, it's not like we necessarily expect him to come right out of the gates with the feature project fully formed, so to speak. But there is a lot to like about this film as well. And I think of that central relationship between Dignan and Anthony, uh, Luke Wilson's character, and how simultaneously... <laughs> Uh, prickly it is like Dignan is kind of a in, in a lot of ways is a difficult character to sympathize with and he butts heads with his his brother quite a bit over the course of this picture but there's also a deep affection underlying all of it in that way it feels like one of the most lived in brotherly relationships in all of Anderson's filmography and it makes me uh, really appreciate the the uh tightrope that Anderson walks between making that feel realistically prickly, but also not going too sentimental when the brother's connection is called on to, to really do some emotional heavy lifting. So it doesn't entirely work as well for me as what I would put at the top of my list, but uh, Bottle Rocket's at my number eight. Yeah. So Bottle Rocket, uh, your number eight, my number six, Uh, it's a bit bumpy. There are some there are some very good aspects to it, and I think you mentioned the the two brothers, and I think that relationship is really well done. And I know, I know Josh Larson, who's a big Anderson fan, said that it's one of the best romantic relationships, or it has one of the best romantic relationships, and that's between Luke Wilson's Anthony and a character named Inez. And I, I think that's probably I think that's probably true. It's fascinating to watch this film. It's, it's got an earthy feel to it. Uh, Anderson is trying to find himself. He's trying to find his emotional strings so he can pull them later. And I, I was reading a review by Glenn Kenny, and he mentioned that if you, know, if you watch Anderson's newer movies and then you go back and watch this one, this one feels very unstylized. But... If you pay attention to the compositions, you can see Anderson, he's starting to put jokes together with those camera shots and with that production design. It's it's all kind of there. He's honing his craft. And I, I do appreciate kind of the natural atmosphere of this movie. It is, uh, it is pretty easygoing. And there's this great scene with Owen Wilson kind of on a motorbike, which is very funny. But yeah, I, I think it's a pretty bumpy film. I think I think it's a fine film. But I feel like with every single directorial debut in this auteur series, I found something to like because you can start to see the breadcrumbs. You can see where they're going. And it's great to see that. And it's good to see that too with Bottle Rocket. So made my number six. Yeah, that's a that's a good way to articulate uh, the the way that Anderson's you you see kind of 
Anderson's sensibility taking form almost like a, a, a newborn star, you know, all <laughs> these particles kind of slowly coming together in what will become the the Anderson touch, so to speak. So that's a, a good way to put it. Moving on to number seven, this is a film that uh, for both of us, you know, obviously for me, it's in my the bottom half of my list, and I know that it's in the bottom half of your list, Wade. So we also know, though, that this film is really beloved by a lot of Anderson fans. So we actually received a recording from listener Joshua Wilson uh, telling us about why he not only loves The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, but th- counts it as Anderson's best film. So let's take a listen. An apologia submitted by Joshua Wilson to the Seeing and Believing podcast. The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou is a fake movie. More precisely, it is a movie about fakeness, about the artificial, artifice, that is, art. It remains Anderson's best work because it is the film in which his thematic, narrative, and aesthetic obsessions most harmoniously align, and consequently, it is the film that best represents his work as a whole and is most successful on its own terms. What is the relationship between art and real life? To what extent does our understanding of the natural world, not to mention our social and familial connections, depend on the constructions we build in our mind to represent them? We use art as a lens to interpret and make sense of the world, and we consequently can't make clean distinctions in our own subjective experience between the world of creation and what we have created. The audience can see that everything in the world of the life aquatic is a fiction, from the geography of the setting, to the made-up claymation sea creatures, to the astonishing scene where we literally see the soundstage cross-section of his boat. Anderson takes great pains to call attention to the artifice in the film, but he isn't just being cute. He's making a profound statement about the nature of filmmaking. Using ostentatious whip pans, the sounds of Portuguese David Bowie covers, comically bad accents, and fictional airlines, Anderson puts his own filmmaking choices in our faces, causing us to take note of them even as the story revolves around a crew trying to make a film. Despite the fact that Zissou is nominally a scientist and a documentary filmmaker, we routinely see the ways in which he creates his scenes, rather than merely observing them. Despite his assurance that nobody knows what's going to happen, and then we film it, that's the whole concept. And it's a documentary. It's all really happening. It's clearly a crafted presentation of a stage show, where we can see behind the curtain. Like the woman says at the screening that opens the film, it still all looks rather fake. By calling attention to this artifice, Anderson is asking us to suspend our belief. Don't trust what you see, but rather reflect on how we create our own narratives and personas as a way to navigate the uncharted waters of our lives. Dictated but not read. Thanks so much for those words, Joshua, about The Life Clock with Steve Zissou. Wade, I... Feel conflicted about putting this at my number seven, especially after <laughs> hearing what Joshua has to say yeah. about it, because in a lot of ways, I don't disagree with anything that he points out there. It is true that the artifice that we see in The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou accomplishes a lot of what Joshua says it does. And yet, this is again coming back to the way that Anderson films kind of have this weird quality where. You can recognize everything that it's doing and you can 
uh, read other people who talk about how it speaks to them so powerfully, you can see all of those things kind of objectively and yet be left a little bit cold by it. it. Now, Life Aquatic doesn't leave me completely cold. I do think that the second half of this film really takes on a, a power to it that is almost entirely absent for me in the first half of the film. So I usually sit down to watch this movie and I kind of sit through the first half and kind of, well, what what's going on? And the the quirkiness kind of just doesn't work for me as well. It's it, the, the little hat that Steve Zissou's uh, crew wears, <laughs> some of the jokes, the fact that Steve Zissou is flatly just a really difficult character to like. He says homophobic things. He's self-absorbed. He's just not a very nice person or very easy to spend time with. But then you get into the second half of this film where he begins to gain a little bit of perspective on those aspects of his character and begins to take some steps toward change. And for me, I think that's when this film really hits home so that by the point, by the time they're in that yellow submarine going to the bottom of the ocean to hunt down the jaguar shark who killed Steve Zissou's best friend, I'm utterly enraptured by that point. And the the fact that this film is able to transition from kind of dislike to really being on board with everything it's doing for me, I think speaks to Anderson's supreme talents as as a filmmaker. Yeah, I, I love hearing your take. I love hearing Joshua's take. Uh, this is actually my least favorite Wes Anderson movie. It's number nine. And, I, you know, I, I realize that this is a story about art, about grief, about humanity's search for transcendence, but it just it doesn't really work for me. I think Bill Murray's central performance is okay given the material, but the character is very unlikable. And the movie doesn't turn around in the back half for me like it does for you, Kevin. And when we are there in that submarine, I it I guess it's it's not as emotional and as transcendent as I think it's supposed to be. Now, there's some funny one-liners. I, I think one of my favorite one-liners in all of Anderson's filmography is uh, from Bill Murray in this movie when he says, don't point that gun at him, he's an unpaid intern. I think it's great. I, I, I think it's funny, <laughs> and, and you get some of those here. Uh, but I'm, I'm just kind of at a loss to enjoy the rest of the film, and I feel like this movie just kind of lacks humanity for me. And I, I think that's one of the problems that I have with Anderson's movies, and I'll talk about it later, is that some of these characters feel so calculated they they feel like characters they they don't necessarily feel like real people now maybe that's the goal and for some people that really works and for 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 me sometimes it does work uh, but here it's just there's there's a wall between me and the characters and i just can't reach them and as a result i i'm not as excited about the story i will say this i think anderson tends to stumble when he has uh, more genre-like elements in his film. So the this film is maybe has the most action scenes of any movie in Anderson's filmography. There are gunfights, there are explosions, there's a pirate attack at one point, and I those, those I don't buy those parts of this film at all. I think they there's 
a mannered quality to them, I guess, that just wholly takes me out of the film and really makes me not really appreciate the perspective that Anderson is taking on the people in those scenes. It just It's artifice intentionally, as Joshua pointed out in his piece that we played earlier, but for me, it's artifice that doesn't really point toward anything except itself. And I think once Anderson kind of gets past those points and gets us down in, in the sub, I think that's where the soul of Steve Zissou really, really lives and comes alive. And I just, I wish that there was more of that and, and less of the uh, less of the gunfights in yeah. this one. And you, you can see it being just on paper, yeah, it's going to be a hard transition either way because you have these uh, very calculated, steady shots, deadpan, everything's blocked to a T, and then you get motion involved, a lot of motion. And it goes back to what I talked about with the Darjeeling Limited, where you get this kind of drowning scene, you kind of get a handheld shot. And I know in Moonrise Kingdom, you get some handheld shots. And some of those work okay, but some of those, it just, it it's not quite right. And I think in this film, like you mentioned, uh, there's more not quite right uh, than works well um, in in terms of the action scenes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, I I do think though that there's enough in here, at least for me, that that makes it work well. I think there there is a death scene in this film that hits like a truck, at least in, in my opinion, and. One of Steve Zissou's final lines that we hear in the film where they're down in that submarine at the bottom of the ocean and they see this this shark who they who Zissou's been sort of like Captain Ahab for the shark the entire time. And he kind of watches it swim around and he, and he says, almost as if to himself, I wonder if it remembers me. And there's a quality to that that he, he shares some deep part of himself with this creature and he wants to he wants that that feeling to be reciprocated somehow and i think that's that's very andersonian in a way a character who feels deeply about something who wants that to be reciprocated but doesn't quite know how to get that reciprocation to happen and that, i don't know that feels very appropriate but moving on to my number 6 this is another film that i actually think is very almost nakedly sentimental, especially in terms of Anderson's body of work, and that's Isle of Dogs. I think this is the first of the animated films that we've talked about on this episode, directed by Wes Anderson. And it's a stop-motion animated film, which is sort of, you think of Anderson working animation, and it seems like it must be a paradise for him, because he can finally control literally every single (laughs) little thing in the frame. And I think that... He's supremely talented at it, and obviously there's another animated film by him that I rank even higher than Isle of Dogs. What I really like about Isle of Dogs is the way that he is able to suggest the deep emotional connection between uh, a human and an animal without having any flesh and blood humans or animals on screen without even having the human speak in a language that uh, can be understood by a non-Japanese speaker. It's not subtitled, it's not dubbed, anything like that. And yet he really, through the, the pow- again, the power of his filmmaking, really 
makes you feel something. The part where Chief, the uh, protagonist dog played by, voiced by Brian Cranston, receives a bath at the hands of the little boy who has uh, come to this island full of infected dogs. And, and he, he receives a bath, he receives some care, some, just some, some loving care and a few pats on the head from this boy. And Anderson shoots uh, Chief's face in close up and you see his eyes well up with tears. And if there's not a more nakedly sentimental motif than a close up on, a, on, a, on tear filled eyes, I'd like to hear it. And I think that that kind of gives the lie to the trope that Anderson's kind of this emotionally constipated weirdo who doesn't really get how real human beings feel. I think shots like that and just the overall tenor of Isle of Dogs of people and dogs trying to connect with each other and make their way back to a sort of of idyllic home together. I think that, that is, I don't know, it's one of the more emotional films in Anderson's filmography. And if it weren't for, again, kind of that touristy aspect that I talked about a little bit with Darjeeling Limited in terms of the Japanese culture in this film, this would be a lot higher on my list. I think it's, it's quite strong. Turpentine brandy. It cools the head and warms the dog bones. It may snow tonight. Really? Thank you very much. Wow. To whom it may concern. She sees the future. Huh. No. She understands TV. <laughs> you seek a dog named Spots. Dog Zero. Dog Zero. Yeah, you know, I'm not entirely convinced that Anderson commits cultural appropriation or tourism here but i do think that out of all of his films this one is more likely to be guilty and there are a number of images that to me make me question um what went into them uh, in particular one is a, a mushroom cloud and i i just I don't, I don't know i i don't like i said i'm not convinced but uh uh, it is something that that I've thought about. Uh, this is number eight for me. So a film that I, I think is fine. It, technically, I think this is an amazing movie. But once again, I, I think these characters here, here feel more like vessels than characters. And there are a number of examples. I think one easy one is just Scarlett Johansson and the character she plays, uh, Nutmeg, and, and, and even some of these other dogs. I... I, I don't know what they're all for other than an opportunity for Wes Anderson to uh, create another joke or to make this a little more zany or quirky. And, and that's back to the word that I know you don't like as much when we're talking about Anderson, uh, Kevin. I, I feel a little bit distant from this film. And I, I do, though, appreciate that this is a film about a disordered society, a, a film that emphasizes a group of people, and this group discards the unwanted. And, you know, Anderson, he is this quirky director. And in terms of popularity, 
he's pretty much mainstream now, but I, I don't think he has always been mainstream. Uh, he used to be out of the mainstream. He's not a mainstream artist, certainly. And his fans have not always been in the mainstream. And it's fascinating that most of his movies seem to have a sweet spot for characters on the outside. You know, the nerds are back, but they haven't always been back. And it makes you wonder uh, how his life has revolved around being on the inside or being on the outside. And there's something very deeply spiritual about that. And we see that in many of his movies. You know, we talked about the the hunt for transcendence in the Darjeeling Limited and some of these other movies, just looking for something more. And what is that more? And then we go back to another theme, and that's people on the outside who are who are struggling. And so we can kind of trace that throughout his filmography, and we definitely see it in Isle of Dogs. Yeah, I guess that's that's a probably a good segue to go into my number five, which is another one of these films that is about uh, loners or outsiders. In this case, Moonrise Kingdom's case, it's about uh, two. Uh, young people, uh, a boy and a girl, both of whom are kind of, they're a little bit odd. They don't fit in with their peers necessarily. And they find each other and they sort of, they, they build this world together. That's part friendship, part uh, like Romeo and Juliet story uh, and, and all Wes Anderson. And you're right that he does show a lot of sympathy for the outcast, the outsider, the person who doesn't quite fit in. And he allows them to sort of be the, the stars of the story in a way that doesn't try to erase the fact that they maybe are a little bit odd, that they don't quite necessarily relate in ways that most people would call typical. And yet that doesn't make them any less human, any less capable of love or any less deserving of love. And I think Moonrise Kingdom is also really interesting for how it's able to walk this really difficult tightrope of portraying two uh, young people on the cusp of adolescence in a relationship that at times is very frankly kind of adult. And the way that Anderson is able to navigate that relationship without being either prurient on one side, condescending on another side, or just plain creepy overall, I think is, again, a testament to the fact that he sees these children not as kids, but as people, and recognizes a lot of the adults around him in those children. And I think that that's, that feels very Andersonian. Like I mentioned before, the fact that so many of his films revolve around children. It's not because children are more interesting than adults. It's because at base, a lot of adults really are just children, and they're trying to figure out the same things that the young people and the children are in these films. And I think you really see that at work in Moonrise Kingdom. I can't offer you a legally binding union. It won't hold up in the state, the county, or frankly any courtroom in the world due to your age, lack of a license, and failure to get parental consent. But the ritual does carry a very important moral weight within yourselves. You can't enter into this lightly. Look into my eyes. Do you love each other? Yes, we do. But, but think about what I'm saying. Are you sure you're ready for this? Yes, we are. They're not listening to me. Let me rephrase it. Oh, we're in a hurry. Are you chewing? Spit out the gum, sister. In fact, everybody. 
I don't like the snappy attitude. This is the most important decision you've made in your lives. Now go over by that trampoline and talk it through before you give me another quick answer. Yeah, you know, these adults, they are, they're not happy either. And they would want to, they, they want to run away. Um, they just, they can't, they have obligations. This is my number seven, Kevin. It's one that I did watch uh, yesterday and it dropped a little bit in my estimation. Obviously, I I still feel pretty cool about the movie. This is this is a film that feels like Wes Anderson turned up to eleven. It's his most polished, I think, technically proficient film, uh, or at least one of the most polished and technically uh, proficient. It's also probably his most calculated, and it's supposed to have that storybook quality but i don't know if that always works with the character and i think one in particular is jared gilman's character sam you know we hear about him we also hear about Susie, who's played by kara haywood uh, that they are troubled children and they're difficult and they are on the outside but that wall is never dropped for me we get one i think it's a a truly revelatory sequence and it's this letter montage between both of those characters and they establish their troubles their relationships with the people around them and you kind of get it okay yeah you know they're being called kind of troubled or difficult kids and, and we see that but but that's about it um, there's not a lot of emotion I think from them I would definitely probably if I had to lean more on more emotion it would probably be towards Susie, uh, she has some obviously some very mean comments to say uh, to her family. But I, I will say this: this is about characters on the outside. We've been talking about that, and to me, if we're thinking about religion in Wes Anderson's movies, this is probably his most religious because he ties being on the outside and then being accepted. And finding grace, specifically, he ties that to the church. These characters meet at church. Uh, they are in the middle, or at least Susie is in the middle of this uh, Noah's Ark production. She says, I like stories with magic powers in them. She's searching for something more. And then they have this huge storm, which feels more like an act of God, right? It's foreshadowed by that Noah's Ark uh, production. And these characters are on top of a church, and grace is found in in that space. And I definitely appreciate that. And I, I do I wish that I like this movie more than I do. I, I do like it, and I do enjoy it. I've seen it a couple times. I'll probably, you know, watch it more in the future. I will say this, Kevin. I am a little uncomfortable with the relationship between the young characters and some of the things that happen. Uh, I know that's kind of a back and forth thing. People have different opinions on it. It does make me a little uncomfortable. I don't think it ruins the film, um, but it just doesn't work for me. Yeah, see, the interesting thing for me is that I kind of started off about this film the way you are. The first time I saw it, I saw I, it didn't really entirely work for me either but as time has gone on i've i've come to appreciate it a lot more and i'm not entirely sure that i can point to any one thing that has catalyzed that change i think it's more just the the as time goes on the more i appreciate just the um 
the sheer filmmaking prowess at play here. I think of that climax in the in the storm where uh, the the two young lovers are wearing those animal masks and they're kind of trapped and they need to be rescued. And the way that Anderson frames them, they're almost like, they're they're like scared animals. They don't really know what to do with themselves. And the adults have to come and and take them and tell them that it's all right. And I think that that is sort of, for me, that kind of opened up this film as not so much a kind of a Romeo and Juliet romance or a story of of young puppy love, but it's really just about how not just these two young people at the film center, but even the adult characters, they, they all kind of, they want reassurance that things are going to be okay, that they'll be taken care of somehow. And uh, a lot of the oddities that we kind of brought up in terms of the, you know, Sam's behavior, Susie's behavior is springs out of the fact that they don't feel at home. They don't feel that kind of reassurance that they so desperately want. Now, obviously they don't articulate it that way because this is an Anderson film, but I think it's definitely there. And as Christian viewers, especially you watch this film and you, and you recognize the yearning for a loving God who will, who will come for us and, and take care of us in the way that we want to. They won't, they won't let a, a sparrow fall without him knowing about it. And I, I feel like that there's something about Moonrise Kingdom that really speaks of that strongly to me. Yeah, I will say this. You know, out of all the adult performances, I think Francis McDormand is, is probably the best. And I love that short segment where Jason Schwartzman shows up. He is really funny. He performs this <laughs> this fake wedding ceremony. He's great. I mean, he's just there for a minute and he's gone, but he's really fantastic. Well, uh, I mentioned uh, animals in just now in regard to Moonrise Kingdom. So it's time to talk about wild animals who are trying not to be wild animals. And that would be my number four pick, uh, the fantastic Mr. Fox. This is... Uh, Anderson's other animated film, his best animated film for sure. And, you know, it used to be that before I had had the chance to see Rushmore or the Grand Budapest Hotel, that this was one of my favorite, if not my my complete favorite of his entire filmography. And I think one of the things I really like about this film gets back at what I mentioned in my my intro, the fact that so many of Anderson's movies are about characters who kind of sense that they there, there's something wrong with them, that they're not where they want to be emotionally, that there's a part of themselves that that is simply broken or not not right. Something is not right in their world. And I see that in the Fantastic Mr. Fox, where in the midst of kind of this outwardly zany uh, plot based on a Roald Dahl novel about these woodland creatures who fight back against the humans who want to uh, essentially subjugate them. I, I think that in the midst of that, Anderson locates a really moving uh, emotional undercurrent. You think of George Clooney's Mr. Fox talking to his wife about how he's never he's probably never going to be the fully civilized, urbane animal that he wants to be. He's always going to be an animal of some sort. And he's kind of, he's going to make his peace with that. And I think that that's uh, one of the most stinkily powerful moments in all of Anderson's films and makes it 
makes Fantastic Mr. Fox, uh, again, sneakily powerful. And that's all well and good. I also think this movie is just absolutely hilarious. It's maybe the funniest of Anderson's films. I don't know. Like, my answer for that changes back and forth. But I just think this, as purely entertaining comedy, Fantastic Mr. Fox is among the best of Anderson's films. And uh, the the more powerful moments just make it all the sweeter. He's wearing it. Your tractors uprooted my tree. Your posse hunted my family. Your gunman kidnapped my nephew. Your rat insulted my wife. And you shot off my tail. I'm not leaving here without that necktie. Kill him! Actually, we should just go. Where'd I park? Yeah, well, leave it to Fantastic Mr. Fox to bring us all together, because it's also my my number four. <laughs> uh, it's very funny, and just, it, it's a it's a wonder it's a delight to look at. I mean, it really is. And if we're talking about action sequences within Wes Anderson's movies, uh, this it has the best. I mean, it really does have the best action sequences. And it's funny because the film, I watched it today, uh, the film opens with um, the Davy Crockett rendition from that old Walt Disney show, you know, King of the Wild Frontier. You have this hero who's who's rugged who goes on adventures uh who tames the wild you know wilderness and then you've got mr fox and he's he's kind of forced to uh become domesticated to put on a tie and and now he's experiencing this midlife crisis you know he says that he's he's seven in fox years and his father died at seven and a half and what does he do well first he moves uh he gets more stuff that's what people do in during a midlife crisis, and then he goes searching for more adventures. Uh, he goes to stealing, not because he needs to, but because he he wants to experience that thrill again. And we keep hearing that he is he is a wild animal, but we also find that this quest to find himself. Right, so these are Wes Anderson movies are about characters trying to find themselves to recapture something. This quest endangers his family and his friends. And I feel like this is kind of about, this is kind of a story about manhood and the idea that, you know, once you do settle down, you're not able to just kind of go and do what you used to be able to go and do. But there are still these, uh, this sense of adventure. And I, I think that in our modern world, for many people, it's it's not that families holding them back it's it's that you know they just feel crunched in their day-to-day jobs where they got to put on a tie or where they're kind of dulled to sleep by technology and they're they're looking for for something to recapture something and we see mr fox kind of going in the wrong direction um but the way out is uh with his friends and it's it's a fascinating movie that you can kind of look at through a number of different angles what does it say at the end you know I'm not entirely sure. I think it says a lot, um, but it definitely goes back to masculinity, manhood, uh, friendship, community, and man, that shot with the waterfall. I think anybody who's seen who has seen this movie knows that shot with the waterfall. I mean, it is, mm. and it's this great conversation, a marriage conversation, 
And there's a lot of emotion there. And it's fascinating because, you know, I talk about this wall, this emotional wall. Uh, that scene grabs me right there. And then I think I think another just fantastic line, um, if we're talking about father-son relationships in Anderson's movies, is you get Mr. Fox, he looks at his son and, and he's talking about, you know, his mom being pregnant. And he says, I'm glad he, meaning the baby, I'm glad he was you. And that's a really powerful line. And you see kind of the redemption of Mr. Fox here. And uh, yeah, really great films. Uh, number four for me. <laughs> you know, I jokingly said during the uh, the intro to this episode, uh, I mentioned dysfunctional families because that is something that is another thing that Anderson is kind of yeah. known for. So many of his films have dysfunctional families in them. But the irony, I think, is that there, are, I I have a hard time thinking of another director that more strongly uh, creates the the who who more strongly points the audience toward a vision of what a loving good family can be. Uh, it's it's really interesting that you know you've got these these families that are obviously not healthy. And yet they all want to be good. They all want to be uh, the ideal father or mother or sibling. And I, I think that this is, again, something like the quirk conversation where Anderson got became well-known for certain things, but that's not really what his films are about. And I think that your discussion of what happens around family and Fantastic Mr. Fox is a really great example of that. Uh, so moving on to my number three, uh, we're getting up close to the top here, and there's not a whole lot of daylight between these top three for me, because I think they're all great, but I had to rank them somehow, and Rushmore was the one that unfortunately got bumped down to number three. I think this is a fantastic film. It's got one of the best debut performances in films, at least in, in recent memory, in Jason Schwartzman's uh, protagonist for this film. I really like Rushmore a lot, and there's so much in it that is iconic Anderson, from the, the musical montages to uh, Bill Murray just really playing up his the sad sack side of his persona in this film, the, the swimming pool scene where his tycoon <laughs> dives off the diving board and he just sinks to the bottom of the pool, still with the cigarette in his mouth, and he just sits there. It's just, it's, and it's iconic for a reason. Um, and there's also, of course, the the fact that Jason Schwartzman's Max Fisher is just consummately accomplished. He writes and directs all of these plays that are a little bit, you know, way more precocious than you would necessarily expect them to be. And Anderson uses kind of the the fact that the the theater is such a big part of Max's life as a way of showing that Max is really kind of playing a role throughout this film. He's playing the role of a very urbane, accomplished, precocious youngster who doesn't have time for all these silly kid things because he thinks that that's not where it's at. He wants to be an adult so bad that he just wants to turn the clock forward and leave childhood behind. And there's a poignancy to 
that impulse that Anderson minds to really great effect here. Uh, it's it's a movie that I could watch over and over. It's really fantastic. Uh, Rushmore at number three. Hey, it's Max Fisher. Oh, hi. Hey, Max, my mom just showed up. Is it okay if I leave early? Over. Sure, Charlie. What's the secret, Max? The secret? Yeah, well, you seem to have it pretty figured out. Secret, I don't know. I, I think you just gotta find something you love to do and then do it for the rest of your life. For me, it's going to Rushmore. Yeah, so remember when we did the uh, the the top five films from our respective cities? So you you did Chicago films, I did Houston films, or films set in Houston, and Rushmore was there. Um, Anderson was was born in Houston, Texas, here where I live, and he went to UT, and he is a Texas boy, and so Bottle Rocket is set in Texas, and Rushmore, it's kind of set in a nondescript. A city, but if you know what to look for, you'll know that it that it is in our side of town. This is my number one. This is my favorite Wes Anderson movie. Rushmore checks all the boxes for me. I, I, you know, stylistically, you know, this is a, a homage to the French New Wave movement. You know, Matt Zollersites has this a great video essay uh, where he coordinates a couple of shots specifically to Truffaut's The 400 Blows, which is also about uh, a young boy younger than Max who's searching for his place in the world. I, I think it's the funniest Anderson film, and I don't really think it's a competition in my mind. This movie is hilarious. And I also think it's the best Bill Murray performance in an Anderson movie. I I wouldn't say that I very much enjoy his performances in Anderson films. I think he's just, he's kind of there and he's an iconic actor. He really does balance the humor and the emotion of Herman Bloom with grace and with ease. And you noted that, you know, that scene in the pool, which is just, I mean, it's great. And, and if you kind of boil it down, Bloom and Schwartzman's Max, they're lost. They feel isolated and they feel lonely despite finding success in their respective quote-unquote fields. Uh, they're seeking purpose, perhaps transcendence. And so what do they do? Well, here in the film, they fill their life to the brim. Max's extracurricular activities, they're out of control. And Herman <laughs> and Max's insecurities, they come to a head when they both compete to win the heart of Miss Rosemary Cross, who's played by Olivia Williams. And that's just kind of a lot of fun to, to watch as it plays out. And there's also just some great moments, especially when Max um, embraces his father, who is a barber. When he does that, there, there's something just kind of beautiful because usually you have, uh, in Anderson movies, you have parents uh, who are embarrassed or separated from their sons. But here you have a son who... Uh, really doesn't want to have much to do with his father. He's he's searching for a new father. And and then at the end of the film, art for the sake of art, as well as art done in conjunction with community, brings about this genuine joy. This is kind of a parable about the downfalls of pride and selfishness and what we go to when we feel insecure. And um, 
it's just a delight, Kevin. I, I just, I really like this movie a lot. And yeah, I think it's his, uh, his best film. Yeah, I couldn't really have said it better myself. It's, it's, and it, it it's one of the more just purely entertaining Wes Anderson yeah. films too. I mean, the, the montage that shows the ever escalating series of pranks and counter pranks that Max <laughs> and Herman Bloom perpetrate on each other is just, it, it's, it's just a masterclass in, in comedy, just how, how it gets more and more intense. And, uh, <laughs> it's, it's really great for sure. I'm glad to see it's at your number one. Moving on to my number two is maybe the film that when people think of the Wes Anderson style, I feel like this movie is the epitome of that style. It's the film, The Royal Tenenbaums. And there's so much that I love about this film. And really, it's probably a tie between this and my number one for, for the top spot, just because I, I like them so much. But there's so much signature Anderson at play here. The uh, the the voiceover from Alec Baldwin mirroring sort of the the uh, this literary novel that's being read aloud. The pans uh, through the the this uh, family home where we kind of get to know the interiors of the spaces that these characters inhabit. The way that the the characters kind of all have their own signature quirks like they they wear the same clothes all the time they have these kind of pet mannerisms and yet i also think that this is the film that kind of transcends those stylistic trademarks to a degree where it doesn't it it doesn't deserve to sort of be remembered as this andersonian cliche i think that there's so much that's They'll just come out of nowhere and, and sock you in the jaw with this film if you if you let it. I think of Ben Stiller's uh, delivery of the line, it's been a rough year, Dad, <laughs> towards yeah. the end of this film as just one of the emotional gut punches in Anderson's filmography. Just utterly, it, it's there's so much emotion contained in just that line that it's utterly remarkable. Gene Hackman's uh, Royal is maybe one of the great cinematic scoundrels of all time. I just love his performance in this film. And I love how he's characterized, how Anderson has the line uh, where Royals you know, says something nice and the voiceover, Anderson's voiceover goes on to say, in that moment, Royal was surprised to find that what he said was true. And there's hmm. such a wonderful character flourish and uh, there, there's so much humor and... Uh, melancholy and character building just in that single sentence that I think it's just an utter marvel. And I, don't know, I love the Royal Tenenbaums quite a bit. There were three extraordinary children in the Tenenbaum family. I said sell it, yeah. Chaz Tenenbaum was a financial expert and started buying real estate in his early teens. Margot Tenenbaum was an acclaimed playwright and won a Pulitzer Prize in the ninth grade. Richie Tenenbaum was a champion tennis player ranked second in the world by age 17. They were brilliant. They were famous. They were unlucky enough to be the children of a man named Royal Tenenbaum. Are you getting divorced? It doesn't look good. Was that our fault? Obviously, we made certain sacrifices as a result of having children, but uh, no, Lord, no. Thank you, Pagoda. Yeah, so this is a movie that I had a chance to 
watch again. And if Moonrise Kingdom kind of dipped a bit, uh, this one, uh, it, it was elevated. And I think this was probably my introduction to Anderson. I think this was probably a lot of people's introduction to Anderson. And it was mine. Yeah, it just, you know, I didn't, I didn't quite get it when I first saw it. And because I saw it a long, long time ago. And so it was great to see it now. And it's just fascinating. If we're talking about, too, I mentioned religion in Moonrise Kingdom. Uh, there's this this Red Cross logo, and it hangs above Richie, who's played by Luke Wilson. It hangs above his head uh, shortly after he tries to, to kill himself. And then as Royal rides away in a cab, we see this cross illuminating the darkness in the street. And... It just feels like a good illustration for how each character in this film is is longing for grace, an extra chance. You know, Gene Hackman's character says he does long for it, and, and he really does uh, later on in the movie. This is a this is a movie about characters who need a narrative that will make sense of their narratives. Uh, this is the story of a family, Kevin, a family that's observed from the inside. So we see their relationships. And then we also learn about their reputation from the outside. And Luke Wilson, he says, I always wanted to be a, a Tenenbaum. And we see reconciliation here, but it's not easy and it's not clean. Ultimately, I, I feel like some of the character development is spread a little bit thin, uh, but it is a funny film. Uh, at times, it's a very, a very warm film. And I feel like a number of these characters, for me, they, they still feel like human beings. And I like how you pointed out Gene Hackman. This is, this is one of the best performances in a Wes Anderson movie. He has this incredible way of portraying the complicated yet kind of lovable royal. Uh, he's not just a character, but I, I feel like I could kind of meet him one day as as flamboyant as he is. You mentioned sc scoundrel, and that's what he is for most of the film. I feel like I've met people kind of like him, and... Uh, he has some great lines, and he just manages to take the humor of Wes Anderson and add emotion to it. And Kevin, uh, <laughs> one of my favorite lines in the movie is um, is when he is uh, he looks at uh, Danny Glover's character. Danny Glover's great here too. Angelica Houston is great here. The the older performers are great here. But he looks at Danny Glover's character and he says, "You old grizzly bear," and it's just. It's funny, but it's also like a competition, right? Um, and it's and it it, it kind of reminds me too. I don't know if you've ever seen the um, you know the the movie Bat Twenty One. It's like this '80s movie uh, where a character is uh, Gene Hackman is actually behind enemy lines, and it's fun to see uh, Danny Glover in this movie because he is like this radio operator in Bat Twenty One to kind of get him back, and then uh, Gene Hackman. Uh, stars in kind of a remake of that uh, behind enemy lines and he is now the radio operator and uh do you know who the actor is who's lost behind enemy lines and behind enemy lines do you remember that movie kevin i i 
Do not. Uh, I don't. I don't even know if I've seen that movie. I feel like I've seen the poster for it everywhere. Right. But. It, well, it's Owen Wilson, and so it's kind of this fun uh, roundup of all these connections with these characters. And so I, I, I like Gene Hackman a lot. I like Danny Glover a lot. They just carry kind of this presence, and um, it's fun to see them here. I think Owen Wilson is is really funny here, and uh, I mentioned Angelica Houston. So uh, there are. Also, I think some bumps with this film, um, but yeah, I did like it uh, a little bit more on this the second viewing. Yeah, you, you mentioned that your estimation of it went up uh, when you were revisiting it for this list. Uh, wh- what position did it rise to? Yeah, so it is now at number five, and I th- what? Yeah, is at number what? five, and uh, but it was it was towards the bottom. It's actually much farther down, but yeah, it's at it's at number oh, five. Oh, Wade. Oh man, this there's there's <laughs> trouble in seeing and believing in paradise, my friend. I can't believe that the Royal Tenenbaums had to rise only yeah. to the bottom half of your list. I just, yeah, I don't know what to say to you right now. Yeah, still, <laughs> hey, still not as good as uh, the Darjeeling Limited. Um, oh, don't know if it'll just, ever get there. Man, I, oh man, we'll just move on. <laughs> <laughs> um, so. Uh, listeners who are who are taking notes, uh, we got your number one uh, is coming up, and the only slot left is my number two. So we come to kind of an agreement here. I I hope. Yeah, I I think that we can both agree that the Grand Budapest Hotel is capital G great. Would you say that's fair? Yeah, I I think I think it is. I think it is a great film. Yeah, I I mean. I'm interested to hear what you have to say about it. I think that the, the Grand Budapest Hotel to me feels like the most mature of Anderson's work. It feels like a movie that he's made as uh, an older person, kind of with the years under his belt, allowing him to have some perspective on on the past and really what the past means. This is a film that's uh so much of it is about nostalgia about looking back at one's youth at the years that have gone by at the history that has gone by and trying to to reckon with it trying to understand the impact that's had on one's life and trying to come to terms with both the joys and the tragedies that lie in that past there's There's a moment in a lot of Anderson films where, like with The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, where I'm watching him and I'm watching him and I'm kind of, you know, taking in the the stylization that Anderson puts into them. And there's usually a moment where it sort of clicks for me and the movie opens up to me and I kind of realize, oh, this is what Anderson has been doing with all that stylization this entire time. And there's kind of an an aha moment that I have. With The Grand Budapest Hotel, it doesn't have that moment for me just because it doesn't... It doesn't feel like there is ever a moment where it needs to click. I, I I watch this movie and from the very start, it clicks for me. It feels just melancholy, uh, humorous, uh, swooningly romantic. I think that you, you mentioned that Josh Larson points out the romance in Bottle Rocket as one of the most... Uh, realistic and 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 uh, affecting of all of the romances in Anderson's filmography. I think the relationship between Sersha Ronan's character and Tony Revolori's protagonist is for my money that would be my pick for the most 
uh, romantic and, and lived in romance in, in Anderson's filmography. And there's so much he does with that to really situate this film in something that's not just about one person looking inward at himself and, and his experiences, but uh, using the opportunity of looking, taking the stroll down memory lane to look at the people who were around him and who formed part of the uh, those experiences and memories that he had and just how without those people, his life would have been lesser. And that is uh, an insight that I think is really valuable. And uh, every time I revisit this film, I just, I find myself so moved by it. There, There's a sequence that's in black and white. So Wes Anderson, sort of this maestro of pastels and yellows and pinks, switches to black and white stock and a different aspect ratio for a scene in which an atrocity occurs and somebody who we've come to care for is lost. And I just, it's hard for me to think about that scene and not just be be overcome with emotion over it because of how how powerful it is and how it really shows that Anderson, he knows what's important, I guess, in the Grand Budapest Hotel. He's not obsessed with surfaces. He's obsessed with the heart. And I think you really see that in, in the Grand Budapest Hotel. Excuse me. Uh-huh. The police are here. They asked for you. Tell them I'll be right down. Okay. Have you ever been questioned by the authorities? Yes, on one occasion. What, what, what? I was arrested and tortured by the rebel militia after the oh. desert uprising. Right. Well, you know the drill then. Zip it. Of course. You never heard the word Van Hoytel in your life. Got it. Okay, let's go. Yes, and I know this is one of your favorite films of the decade, and uh, you know I like it too. It landed at at number two for me, and I feel like I've maybe said this in the past, but I think that the Grand Budapest Hotel is where the immaculate polish and the calculation that defines Anderson's most recent films sees its full culmination. Anderson's style, I think it fits perfectly with this story within a story within a story. There's something there about this style that tells us um, what to think of myth and what to think of nostalgia and what to think of memory. This is a movie about the way we view the past, as you mentioned, and, and the past can never fully be recreated. I think Ralph Fiennes is spectacular and like Gene Hackman in The Royal Tenenbaums, he blends comedy and emotion together almost perfectly. I think that Anderson uh, probably here, more here than any other movie of his, he's able to balance such a large cast. And I think it's because he has all of these characters, but there's still this this central story and it's it's speaking to a small group of individuals and he really does nail that and it's just i mean it's beautiful to look at i've got matt zollersite's book uh, where he you know works through so many of the the frames in the film and compares them to other movies uh 
classics. There's a great ski chase. There's just so much to like about this movie. And I think, I think one way to tell um, how effective it is, is, is one, just emotionally are you touched? And I am. But uh, do you want or do you wish you could go back to that Grand Budapest Hotel and spend some time there? And I do. Whenever I watch that film, just like whenever I think about the past, my past, sometimes you just say, I'd like to go visit for a while. And this movie does that with that time period and with that place and with these characters. And um, I think that's what the movie's trying to do. And it, it really nails it. Well, it really, he, he does so well at capturing the quality of nostalgia, which is that in in some ways you you recognize that the the past wasn't perfect. You know, you 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 had difficulties in in high school, or you know the 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 history of your your home country is full of all sorts of terrible things, and yet there's still a part of you that does kind of long for the good parts of that past. And Ray finds his character. He's you know he's. He's also kind of a scoundrel. He's not perfect. He's got his flaws and foibles for sure. And yet there is kind of a nobility to his character and to this wider community of hotel uh, uh, employees that Anderson implies is sort of lost in the modern day and can't really be recovered. And that I there, there's kind of this quality of... of Zanezook to that, you know, the the word coined by C.S. Lewis to uh, describe the feeling that you get when you you long for something that you can't quite put your finger on, but it speaks to the hunger for eternity in the human heart. I think there's a little bit of Zanezook in in the Grand Budapest Hotel where you you walk through the memories of Tony Revolori's character, and it's not so much that he longs to be back in this pre-modern era with the rise of fascism, but he longs for something from that era. There's something that he wants and that can't fully be recovered in this life. And I don't know, I think there's something very moving about that. That's well said, uh, Kevin. And uh, yeah, that's that's our ranking. And it's, it's a lot of fun. I think more so with this list, it's fun to see our uh, divergence and to see just kind of, like you mentioned, the the personal <laughs> aspects of of movie watching and just how movies hit us in, in you know in different ways yeah it, it really is and it's always nice to to hear other people's uh, hear those other perspectives even when they're criminally wrong about the royal tenon bombs i still i still like hearing, <laughs> hearing you be criminally wrong about it Wade. <laughs> hey number five is not bad right uh hey that's true that's true <laughs> Uh, we also, you know, I guess that would be a good segue into going into some listener feedback. We have had some listeners who have been watching along with us over this 2020 tour series that we've been doing for the last few episodes. And it's been really a treat to get some people even sharing their own personal rankings of the directors that we've covered over the course of that series. Yeah, it's been a whole lot of fun to do that. And I feel like we've had even more feedback recently than in the past, and that's been great. So Mitch Wiley, uh, a listener, reached out to me on Letterboxd because I noted that I had watched The Royal Tenenbaums and I was putting together this episode with you, Kevin, and he's a big fan of Wes Anderson. Wes Anderson is his seventh favorite director, and so he sent me 
his rankings. He posted them on Letterboxd, and I want to read through those. Uh, so at number nine, he had Bottle Rocket. Uh, number eight was the Darjeeling Limited. Number seven was Rushmore. Number six was The Life Aquatic. Number five was Isle of Dogs. Number four was the Royal Tenenbaums. So he, he did a little bit better than me on that one, Kevin. Um, <laughs> number three, Fantastic Mr. Fox. Number two, the Grand Budapest Hotel. And number one, Moonrise Kingdom. So uh, it's fascinating. Yeah. yeah, that. so my number one was his number seven. And uh, I wasn't a huge fan of Moonrise Kingdom. But I, I, I say I liked it. I thought it was fine. Uh, but it certainly wasn't my number one. He did say this. Uh, there isn't one Wes Anderson adventure I dislike. So, uh, yeah, good to hear from Mitch. Yeah, that does uh, lessen the sting a little bit of, of Rushmore being so low. But, you know, if, if you love all of the films, <laughs> going even the ones at the bottom, uh, you know, you don't, you don't have to worry about that ranking too much. So thanks so much for sharing that, Mitch. That was really interesting to hear. Wade, we also got some some feedback on some earlier episodes. So Thomas Zach tweeted us uh, saying that he was catching up on our Christopher Nolan episode. And he says, have to admit, after Wade put Memento at number six on his list, I said to myself, oof, Wade, and stopped listening. <laughs> savage, Thomas. Absolutely savage. Well, okay. I'm going to kind of pull the Mitch card with Christopher Nolan. And I said that I like all of Nolan's films. And so it's at number six, but I really do like it. I think, yeah, it's a four and a half star film, even though it's at number six. That's not bad, Kevin. Not bad. <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> I, I am torn because I, I, I accept that argument and I do think it's valid. But I also kind of side with Thomas a little bit in thinking that, I mean, Memento is my number one of, of Christopher Nolan's films. So, you know, I, I'm torn. I don't know who to side with in this dispute. Um, I will read his follow-up tweet where he says, In better news, this has finally given me a reason to fix a cinematic blind spot. Until today, I hadn't seen a single Reichert film. Watched River of Grass this morning. So... Glad to hear that, Thomas. Glad to hear that yeah. uh, you are beginning your first step into a larger, <laughs> into a larger world. To quote uh, uh, Ben Kenobi, uh, yeah. Well, looking forward to hearing more about what your thoughts on her. It's, it's fascinating because uh, Eric Johnson, another listener and Patreon supporter, messaged me, and he just started the Reichert journey, and I think he's worked through all of her films, and I think, I think Wendy and Lucy came out as number one on his list. I think I think that was the case. All right. Very cool to hear that uh, Reichert's getting a little bit of love and that we could help point some people in her direction. Always nice to hear. We also caught wind of uh, some discussion happening about our David Fincher episode. Apparently, Wade, there are some people, some listeners out there in Seeing and Believing Land who were listening to our Fincher episode and were shocked, shocked by the fact that you and I didn't have a whole lot good to say about the girl with the dragon tattoo. One listener who apparently has their own podcast, Minorities Report Film, at mreportpod on Twitter, says, I don't know if I can get through this pod. He's talking about our David Fincher episode. I feel like I should muster through it, but one of them just said they hate the girl with the dragon tattoo, and the other one said it's one of his worst. They also said it has no heart. 
I think that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. This listener goes on to say that The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo is one of their favorite films. So, you know, Wade, you can't please everyone all the time. It is really interesting to know that the uh, seeing and believing listener base contains multitudes and uh, even the lesser loved Fincher films from us have a lot of love uh, out there somewhere. Yeah, you know, usually it's pretty safe uh, to dislike the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo adaptation by Fincher. It's, it really, we mentioned, it kind of falls to the bottom of his filmography for most people. But when you get someone like Fincher, you get someone like Anderson, even, even Nolan, you get some of those films that a lot of people, they feel like they're on the bottom, but for others, they're at the top. It's just, it, it's, it's really fascinating. But yeah, um, I still think it's, you know, not great. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's, it is what it is. Best to move on from there. Uh, he does, Minorities Report uh, does concede that I do really like what Seeing and Believing had to say about Fincher's use of visual effects as well as his gift for pacing. I agree that it's probably his background in music video directing that has made him so good at it. So we were able to find some common ground in the end. That was really nice. Also, thanks to Lindsay Dunn, who uh, helped share that episode uh, with Minorities Report and uh, kind of get the word out a little bit. We definitely appreciate you sharing the episode, Lindsay. Yes, and we also want to wrap this episode episode up by reminding our listeners to check out our Patreon page. It's really easy to get hooked up there. And when you do that, you support the podcast. Just go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. And Kevin, I know we're running out of time, but a lot of levels, donation levels, one of our favorites is the what can you buy for $5 donation level. And what could someone buy for five bucks? Uh, five dollars would get you uh, pirate hooks, but for your feet instead of for your hands. That feels very Wes Anderson. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> maybe the little hat, too, uh, from the Life Aquatic. Yeah. You know, the way that you choose to cosplay as a pirate is it, it's a universe of possibilities. So mm. uh, there's a whole range of accoutrement that you can uh, get going for when you feel or uh, feel like being a little bit buccaneerish. Yeah, which is every day, uh, every day for me. <laughs> uh, listeners, just go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. Uh, we hope to put your $5 to good use by keeping the content going. And we love all the feedback We'd love to hear your feedback about Wes Anderson, how we're right, how we're wrong. We just appreciate all of it. So make sure to tweet us at cbeliefpod, at cbeliefpod. If you're like Lindsay Dunn, go ahead and tag someone that you think would enjoy this episode. Just go on our feed and type their name in, and uh, maybe they're a Wes Anderson film fan. Maybe they aren't. Either way, I think they'll hopefully enjoy the podcast episode. If you'd like to send us a little bit longer of a message, make sure to email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Once again, that's seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Kevin, we've reached the end of our, our tour series. Uh, and wow, it's been, it's been a lot, but it's been great. It's been really good. Yeah, it's been great fun and looking forward to uh, moving on to to other things so we can maybe start watching some some newer releases again but man taking these walk through the uh, past filmographies of these really great directors has been 
I know. It's been a really nice thing for us to have done. Yeah, I've, I've had just a, a fantastic time. Listeners, thank you for listening to this week's episode. It's brought to you by ChristandPopCulture.com and our Patreon supporters. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. We'll see you later. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.